The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. from Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington. If you'd like to join in the discussion, email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm or call into the program with your questions. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to the Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host. Thank you to all of you who are listening with us today. We're glad that you're out there, glad that you're listening, and uh, we love it to get your comments on Facebook. And we uh, got a Facebook message today that someone is celebrating a 24th anniversary of sobriety, so congratulations. You know who you are. And... Uh, uh, we're uh, very happy for you, so thanks for letting us know about that. And we thank you all for posting on our Facebook page. You can find us at Spirit of Recovery at um, on Facebook. And also thank you for emailing us. We love to get your emails at Spirit of Recovery at unity.fm. We always are bringing you uh, guests who are down to earth, who are practical, who have lots to share with you um, on topics that are important to the recovery community. So thank you for letting your friends know about our program and for uh, keeping the word getting out there in brighter and wider circles to your spiritual community and to your unity community. Every week we are bringing you practical information that you can use. We bring you guests who either are uh, professionals in the recovery field, who write about recovery topics, who um, are teaching in some ways recovery ideas, who are teaching spiritual concepts, and who are living these concepts. And a lot of times our guests are, of course, also people who are in recovery themselves. Not always but a lot of times, and so we're grateful that everybody we bring you has lots to add to your recovery. We want you to know that the spirit of recovery is a welcoming place, and so if you're a person that's in recovery from any kind of an addiction, or if you're the family member or friend of someone with the disease of addiction, whether or not you're in your own recovery as a family member, or whether or not your family member's in recovery, you're welcome here. You're welcome also if you're someone that's simply curious or interested in the concept of recovery and you want to hear a little bit about what it's about. We're glad that you're here. Again, my name is Anna Schaus. I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a unity minister. I'm also a recovery counselor. I'm a person who has in my circle of love and friendship many people that have the disease of addiction and that got me started on an active path of personal growth and spiritual development over 30 years ago. And so my walk has been uh, a very rich one of a combination of spiritual principles, unity principles, and recovery principles. And that uh, wakes me up to new possibilities every day. I'm very, very grateful um, to be on this path. I'm glad you're here with us and are interested in hearing what you're experiencing in your spirituality and recovery walk. Today our topic is coming full circle, bringing the gifts of recovery back to the community. My guest is Bill White. Bill is a senior research consultant at Chestnut Health Systems and Lighthouse Institute. Bill is a prolific author. He has numerous books and other publications um, about recovery. A lot of it has to do with the history of recovery movement, about um, uh, how it is that recovery has developed 
over time and uh, he's especially interested at this point in his career about what the future of recovery is. So he's going to be uh, sharing with us today about uh, what's called the New Recovery Advocacy Movement, and Bill actually coined that term, and it's a movement that works to remove the cultural stigma that's attached to addiction and recovery, and it opens the door for recovering people, those people who are family members or uh, people with the disease of, of substance or process addictions, to enter back into their communities, and he'll be talking with us about how that fulfills recovery and actually is important for society and for the community. Bill holds an MA in addiction studies. He's worked in the addictions field in a variety of ways since 1969 um, as a counselor, as a trainer of other professionals, and as I said, as a writer. He's uh, written... uh, Again, numerous books, one particularly called Slaying the Dragon, the History of Addiction Treatment and Recovery in America, which is a rich book um, that you can learn a lot from, and also one that's uh, recently out called Let's Go Make Some History, Chronicles of the New Addiction Recovery Advocacy Movement. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today on Spirit of Recovery. Hi, Anna. It's a pleasure to be with you. Tell us a little bit uh, about what has gotten you so interested in the history of recovery you uh, and the recovery movement. It's not just sort of a, a, a you know sort of a bunch of facts. It, it has some implications for what's happening in recovery today. How'd you get interested in why? Yeah, it really does, Anna. And, and my interest goes back a pretty long ways. I. I was part of a generation of people who came into work in the addictions field in the late 1960 out of our personal or family recovery. And I'd worked in the field, oh, probably five or six years when I was at a flea market one Saturday and ran across a flyer for something called an inebriate asylum with the date 1877 on it. And I I was a bit shocked to discover there was an addiction treatment that existed a hundred years earlier that no one in my professional training had told me about. So I I had this idea that I should really investigate what was going on back there and maybe write a little article about it for, for counselors. And what I didn't know was that that little article would grow into about 20 years of research on the history of treatment and recovery and uh, it ended up being the book Slaying the Dragon. So, uh, And I just kind of got the history bug. Um, I've always had a passion and interest in, in addiction studies and addiction treatment and recovery mutual aid groups uh, in their history, but uh, the, the history bug really got me, so I, I've been doing historical research since the mid-1970s. Right. When uh, in the book Slaying the Dragon, uh, one of the many facts in there that fascinated me was that the idea of a spiritual approach to recovery did not start with Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell us a little bit about that. What were some of the early spiritual approaches? Yeah, it really didn't. And in fact, uh, the whole notion of recovery mutual aid, these AA-type groups date... uh, you know, a couple hundred years before AA, they really begin in the 1730s with uh, Native American religious and cultural revitalization movements uh, organized by Native American leaders who uh, had suffered from alcoholism, sobered themselves, often through a profound spiritual experience, and then brought, uh, in some cases, new religions back to their tribes, calling for the rejection of alcohol and a return to Native folkways. And so, so this spiritual tradition of, of using these transformative experiences to radically alter, you know, one's life following addiction, uh, you know, go pretty deep into history. And we also see these movements continuing, you know, in the 1800s with uh, the Washingtonians, uh, fraternal temperance societies, the ribbon reform clubs. Uh, there were some explicitly religious recovery support groups, Christian groups, beginning in the 1870s. And, and then around the turn of the century, we had groups such as the United Order of Ex-Boozers and the Harlem Club of Former Alcoholic Degenerates, which are two of my favorites, uh, and other groups that led right up to, uh, to the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous in the mid-1930s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just fascinating. What are, are some of the things that the uh, that 
the AAs learned from those early movements, both well, what to do and not to do? Yeah, the interesting thing is you would think with that rich history behind them that there would have been a lot of lessons they could draw from. But but AA was not derivative. There's no evidence that the AA founders or early AA members had any awareness of the groups that preceded them, uh, literally until about the mid-1940s. And at that time, uh, AA was going through a lot of turbulence, uh, rapid growth, and a lot of issues that would lead to the development of the traditions. And interestingly enough, uh, an AA member uh, stumbled onto the history of the Washingtonians and wrote an AA Grapevine article on the Washingtonians and their demise, a group that had grown from six men in 1840 that were part of a drinker's club that decided to form their own temperance society, uh, which they did, and it grew from those six men to more than 400,000 members within about 48 months. And that almost overnight disintegrated. Uh, with many of the alcoholics kind of going underground into other recovery support structures. So here's Bill Wilson in the mid-1940s struggling with all these problems AA groups around the country are writing to him about. And he reads of this group, like AA, that was founded and thrived and then virtually disintegrated. And uh, in, in some ways, I really think that became the beginning of, of Bill's obsession uh, with what became the 12 Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Right. So he, even though it didn't derive, AA didn't derive from those earlier movements, they, there were a few things they picked up once they learned about Yeah, it really did, it. Nana. There were some similarities. You know, for example, the, that classic three-part story style that we hear in 12-step fellowships, the way things used to be, what happened, and the way things are, are now. You know, that, that three-step story style goes all the way back to Native American communities and really fits the kind of temperance tales that were told by the Washingtonians in the 1840s. And, and things like a public commitment, uh, mutual sharing, uh, things that were similar to what will become called sponsorship within Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, there are sort of similarities. And it's not that, that AA drew from them, but it's like anytime you've got people in recovery who come together, they relearn common lessons. And, and those seem to be replicated sort of generation after generation. Now, what's interesting is that... Um, some people have often asked me, well, if, if AA didn't know of its predecessors, then what's made AA so distinctive? And, and there were some shifts. Uh, most of the groups that preceded AA, the focus was really on how do we elicit from someone a commitment to sobriety? So in some ways, the, the AA's predecessors had a program of recovery that consisted in, in AA's language of the first step. And that was that people would, would publicly acknowledge they had a problem with alcohol and sign a temperance pledge in the 1840s, that, that liquor would never again touch their lips. And, and what AA figured out, uh, very different from its predecessors, was that the problem of alcoholism is not how to stop drinking. Uh, alcoholics stop drinking all the time. The, the problem is really how do you live a life so you don't start drinking? And so, so AA's developed a program that focused not so much on the initiation of recovery as much on, as on long-term maintenance of recovery. Uh, the other thing that was somewhat unique about AA um, was that it, it, it's, it, it knew that alcoholics entered recovery with a tremendous amount of baggage, and, and part of that baggage comes from the enormous guilt of sins of omission and commission that flow out of a, of a chronic state of alcoholism. So in some ways, AA developed um, sort of the best technology that's ever been developed for guilt, uh, which is really the mechanisms of self-inventory and, and confession and making amends and acts of service to others. Now, as, as unique as some parts of the steps were, uh, in many ways, when people ask me, well, well, AA has survived because of the 12 steps. And I really say, well, the, the 12 steps have been a boon to many people to guide their individual recovery. But as an organization, AA survived much more because of the 12 traditions, because those traditions really specifically dealt with the kinds of issues that had self-destructed almost all of AA's predecessors. 
issues of property and money, in ego, in issues of uh, public acclaim and press. Um, and, 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 and if you look at the traditions, almost point by point, they address those kinds of issues that, that were virtually uh, rising within the early AA groups and without the tra- traditions could quite well have led to the self-destruction of AA. Right. You bring up uh, the the point there that AA has a great mechanism for dealing with guilt and, and with the shame of all the the many things that happen when a person is in active addiction. Obviously, there's a lot of stigma still attached to addiction. Um, how do – and I know that your recovery advocacy, uh, this concept – begins to address that what's been the cycle or the history of the stigma of addiction that's kind of cycled around a few times too i believe yeah it's yeah it's we we have these cycles where we go through a period where suddenly we we destigmatize these problems meaning we kind of lower the stigma attached to them we shift from moral to medical models that makes it much easier for people to step forward and get help and and we decriminalize, meaning that we pull people out of the criminal justice system and put them in systems of, of compassion and care rather than systems of control and punishment. Um, and, at this, and, 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 and yet we see behind that often uh, periods where we once again go through a period where we sort of lose faith in the prospects of long-term recovery, um, we, we, we re-stigmatize the problems, demedicalize them, recriminalize them, and we've got these repeated cycles. Um, there was an elaborate network of addiction treatment and recovery mutual aid in the 19th century, most of which collapsed in the, in the two, first two decades of the 20th century. And people in recovery and visionary professionals are going to spend most of the 20th century uh, rebuilding that network of support and care uh, in the second half of the 20th century. But by the time we get into the 1980s, particularly at the height of the, the cocaine epidemic and the HIV and AIDS epidemic that's going to come on its heels, uh, we see once again by the, by the late 1980s, we're once again uh, demedicalizing, recriminalizing, trying to incarcerate our way out of addiction problems. Um, making it more and more difficult for people to re- to receive help for those problems, and and that, and those are really the seeds out of which the new recovery advocacy movement began in the in the late 1990s and into the new century. Right. Um, it's interesting what you bring that up is that that society itself loses faith in the recovery process that parallels what can happen in individuals' lives uh, in family members. Uh, in their own recovery or in people with it is, substance, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. You know, in the, the probably the first major episode of this was in the the late eighteen hundreds, and there was a sense that uh, there was all this promise with recovery and, and networks of, of of inebriate homes and asylums and private addiction cure institutes and bottled and boxed home cures and other such things. And, and by the late 1890s, part of what had happened was the treatment system of the 1800s so oversold what it could do by boasting 100% cures and such nonsense that it didn't take too long before virtually everyone knew someone for whom treatment did not work. And okay, with call that, that thought. Of- it's time for our break. Sorry, we'll oh, be right okay. back. So listeners, hang in there with us. We'll be back and talk some more about this recovery advocacy movement with my guest, Bill White. You are listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. To support this ministry, go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Your contribution helps us broadcast messages of love and inspiration throughout the world. Do you ask with childlike wonder, what is the nature of God? Who is Jesus? What is the Christ? How do we know what we know? 
When you ask these or other heart-centered questions about the non-physical, intangible aspects of life, you are, on some level, a student of metaphysics. New from Unity House and nearly five years in the making, Heart-Centered Metaphysics, a deeper look at Unity teachings is now available. This is Paul Hasselbeck, author of this quintessential study guide. Enjoy a deeper exploration of universal spiritual principles and truths, whether you are just starting or have been seeking for years. Each thought-provoking chapter of Heart-Centered Metaphysics speaks to truth-seekers like you, providing essential tools to help elevate your consciousness and create spiritual transformations in your outer life and circumstances. Order your copy today from the Unity Online Store at www.unity.org. Then click on Shop. From on the air to on the sea, pack your bags and come with me. Hey, hey, what you waiting for? An early winter rendezvous with all the things you love to do. Hey, hey, treat yourself to more. A little more summer, a little more sun, a little less work and a lot more fun. A little more beach, a little more sand, a little less stress and a lot more pain. Join your favorite Unity Online Radio hosts for Cruise in the Caribbean, November 10th to 17th, 2012. On this fun-filled Caribbean adventure, enjoy sunshine, exceptional dining, and island excursions. Feed your spirit with music, message, and meditation, plus one-on-one time with some of your favorite hosts. That's Cruise in the Caribbean, November 10th to 17th, 2012. To learn more, go to unity.fm slash cruise. A little more sunset, a little more sea, a little less do and a lot more be. Listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with Reverend Anna Schaus, PhD. If you'd like to share your questions, comments, and experience with today's topics, call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. I'm very glad that you're joining us today. Our topic is Coming Full Circle, Bringing the Gifts of Recovery Back to the Community. And my guest is Bill White. Bill is a Senior Research Consultant at Chestnut Health Systems, the Lighthouse Institute. And Bill has been involved um, as a professional in the recovery movement since 1969. He is a prolific author. He is a trainer. And um, he has uh, been very involved involved in uh, under, helping us understand the history of the recovery movement and, ha- and understand how that impacts us today. Bill coined the term the new recovery advocacy movement, which is what we're discussing today. And he is a volunteer consultant to Faces and Voices of Recovery, which is a premier um, organization that does promote um, recovery advocacy. Bill's, uh, you can learn more about Bill and, and see many of the things that he's written at www.williamwhitepapers.com. That's williamwhitepapers.com. So you can uh, see all the many things that Bill has written and how he has, uh, helps us understand um, who we are in this recovery process. Before we get back to our conversation, I invite you to join me in the Serenity Minute. A brief moment of meditation, of relaxation, of allowing your mind and your heart to open up and become aware of that power in your life, that power for creativity, that power for good, that power for recovery. I invite you to join me in this constructive idea. I'm grateful for my recovery. I share what I've learned with my larger community. I'm grateful for my recovery. I share what I've learned with my larger community. Thank you, friends, for joining me in the Serenity Minute. And now we're back with my guest, Bill White, 
talking about the new recovery advocacy movement. And Bill, before the break, you were talking with us about um, how it is that in society uh, we can lose faith in the recovery process and, and as a society go back to punishment. And you were talking to us about what happened at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of uh, the 20th. And uh, tell us some more about that and how it parallels some more recent events in our cultural history. Yeah, and it really does. At the, the 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 sort of lost cultural faith in recovery in the in the late nineteen hundred eighteen hundred, excuse me, in early nineteen hundreds, it, it was sort of like the the, the culture said, uh, "We're simply going to let the existing alcoholics and addicts die off," and in some ways they said, "The sooner the better." Almost the cultural abandonment of people who were addicted. And they said, we're going to prevent the creation of a new generation of alcoholics and addicts by legally prohibiting the sale of alcohol, uh, which they did through a, almost a century-long temperance movement that led to the legal prohibition, prohibition of the sale of alcohol. And we're going to aggressively control the distribution of opium, morphine, cocaine, uh, cannabis, um, and the newly arriving sedatives in the early 20th century. And that's what they did. Uh, and with that addiction treatment from the, the uh, 1800s and 1900s that had taken all that time to build virtually collapsed. And, and we're not going to see really the rebirth of a specialized field of addiction treatment until we get into the 1940s and 1950s. And then, of course, the, the, a whole generation of people in recovery through the 40s, 50s, and 60s are going to advocate for this modern network of addiction treatment programs that now exist in the United States. And in the 1980s, as I said, we went through, in some ways, a kind of parallel movement, uh, particularly at the very height of the cocaine epidemic in the United States. And as, as people began to lose faith, we passed more and more draconian laws that began to massively transfer very large numbers of addicted people to the criminal justice system. And, and we, we also began to see, you know, figures like uh, the First Lady uh, Betty Ford, the, the images of the, of the nobility of people in recovery and their service to others is going to disappear and all we're going to begin to see are images of cocaine-related violence. Uh, we're going to see infants trembling in perinatal intensive care units from cocaine exposure. We're going to get a lot of racial and class things mixed into that. So in some ways, it was a pretty ugly time uh, that paralleled some of what went on in the, in the opening decade of the 20th century. And it was really those roots all of a sudden that really, and, and I think that's a theme, Anna, that when things begin to look bad, uh, when systems of support for recovery begin to weaken or collapse, uh, we're always going to see people in recovery begin to mobilize, and we're going to see visionary professionals forge alliances with people in recovery to rebirth systems of care. So in summary, if I had to talk about, you know, what's this latest historical period about, uh, we have seen a dramatic growth since the period I'm describing in recovery mutual aid in the United States. Uh, we've seen, obviously, the growth of 12-step recovery programs and multiple, multiple adaptations of, of, of AA and NA. Uh, we've seen the emergence of secular recovery programs, and we've also seen the emergence of explicitly religious frameworks of recovery, uh, ranging from uh, Maladi Islami all the way to Celebrate Recovery, which is perhaps maybe the most rapidly growing recovery support structure in the United States right now. Uh, we also saw that recovery advocacy movement um, emerge in the late 1990s, uh, really come together in 2001 at a recovery summit in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, out of which is going to come a coalition of Faces and Voices of Recovery and the Legal Action Center, and at that time the Johnson Institute, uh, the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, and many new grassroots recovery community organizations to launch what we will describe in a moment as this new recovery advocacy movement. But, but we also saw a couple of other things that were very uh, important historically, uh, and that was we saw the, the development of new recovery support institutions that really didn't fit the category of recovery mutual aid, 
uh, and they didn't fit the category of professional treatment. We saw the growth of recovery homes and recovery schools and recovery industries, uh, recovery ministries. Uh, we saw recovery cafes and recovery community centers. And then we began to see the emergence of, of recovery-focused mobilizing within the area of art and theater and sports and other such areas to begin to almost develop a fully emerging culture of non-denominational culture of recovery in the United States, meaning this was not a growth movement out of AA or NA, but really a separate identity of people in recovery coming together uh, from many different pathways of recovery to celebrate the reality of recovery and, uh, and, and to acknowledge that there are multiple long-term pathways of recovery. That movement is also going to push for a redesign of addiction treatment to make it much more recovery-focused, and it's going to push for a research agenda to really answer some of the most critical questions related to long-term recovery. So, so as, we, as we went back through that cycle in the 1990s and, and early uh, 21st century, we uh, re-replicated, and, and out of that has come this, this new movement that we can talk about now. Sure. Did that movement come uh, from the grassroots, or were there some drivers in uh, the treatment profession, or you know, it wasn't something really else? within the treatment profession. Although, you know, I shouldn't. In some ways, there was a parallel movement. There was a sense inside treatment, particularly from old timers working in treatment, that somehow this thing we call treatment had become disconnected from this larger and much more prolonged process of long-term recovery. Uh, as treatment got briefer and briefer, uh, a lot of frontline counselors and a lot of recovering people close to treatment began to be somewhat disillusioned and felt like we were recycling people through many, many episodes of brief stabilization without the ability to really transition them to stable long-term recovery maintenance. So that was the sense that this we needed to get treatment reconnected uh, to recovery, but we also had a much we, we also had a much larger grassroots movement, and that grassroots movement was really people in in recovery, beginning to assess the needs of people seeking recovery in their communities, and began to launch these new recovery support institutions, and also began to relaunch the the kind of advocacy movement that had started in the 1940s uh, with Marty Mann in 1944, one of the first women to achieve stable sobriety in AA, who, who launched uh, the, the National Committee on Educational and Alcoholism in 1944 with, with virtually the goal to fundamentally change how the United States viewed alcoholism and the alcoholic. And, and she and all of the local affiliates around the country were very successful in doing that over a course of about three and a half, three and a half decades. Uh, but, but when in some ways that movement succeeded, many of those advocates got absorbed into the emerging treatment system. And, and with that, their, their role in public education and policy advocacy really stopped uh, as, as, as they got preoccupied with just managing these ever-growing treatment institutions. So in some ways, the recovery advocacy movement with these new grassroots community recovery community organizations re-embraced the need to take on and challenge stigma related to addiction and recovery, uh, to begin to uh, offer the culture living proof of the reality of long-term recovery uh, in the midst of celebrities constantly heading out for another cycle of rehab. Uh, meaning that the problems of addiction were incredibly visible in the culture, but the culture really had lost sight of the reality of large numbers of people in long-term recovery. So in essence, a people across these recovery pathways said, we will forge a movement and we will step forward publicly and announce our presence in this culture. And it was a very simple idea. What they said was, stigma related to cancer did not change until we reached a critical mass in the culture where large numbers of people knew somebody who'd personally survived cancer. 
And the, the recovery advocacy movement said the same thing, that those attitudes aren't going to change until we begin to make recovery as visible or more visible than is addiction. And the way that we have to do that is we need a vanguard of people to step forward and announce their presence in this culture, not as AA members or NA members or, or other fellowships, but to step forward and identify themselves with the status of long-term personal and family recovery. And so that's what the movement did, and then very quickly began behind that to also organize these new recovery support institutions, trying particularly not focused, they're not competing with treatment in the sense they're, the, the focus is not on how do we, you know, create initial stabilization of people seeking recovery. Treatment does that very well. What treatment does not do well is manage the transition from recovery initiation to recovery maintenance. So these new support institutions are really about what do people need as individuals and families to support long-term recovery. And that movement is beginning to create those resources. Right. Tell us about some of those different resources, um, kind of what they're doing and how people might uh, find them. I'm sure there's a lot of resource uh, on the web or what are some of the details of, of these, and how can people yeah, find them? As, as an example, it, you know, if you can imagine somebody who's deeply enmeshed in a culture of addiction, who gets pulled out of that culture by crisis or coercion, it enters a, a, a closed treatment environment and, and may experience profound changes inside that institutional environment and, and be ready to leave that environment with very, very high motivation to sustain their recovery. But imagine them then leaving back into their home community. They have, they have no housing that's recovery supportive. If they want to return to school, for example, people whose college careers were interrupted with, through their addiction, they're going to enter a very abstinence-hostile environment called college or, or universities. Um, they, they're, they're, they don't have a network of community supports beyond what they can find inside the, 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 the rooms of recovery fellowships. So, so what, the, what the recovery advocacy movement said is we need a world people can recover in, and they began to create that physical world by creating recovery homes that pro- provided sober housing, for people that needed an environment following treatment conducive to recovery. For those individuals who wanted to go back to school, whether they created recovery high schools and recovery college programs where I can go to a a college or a university and pursue my education, but I can actually have support for my recovery right on that campus in terms of everything from recovery mentors to recovery support meetings on campus uh, I can actually get scholarships uh, specifically uh, devoted for people in recovery seeking to return to school. Um, let's say that I want to. I want to. I'm in a recovery home, but I need employment, and I may never have even had legitimate employment in my life. Uh, there, the recovery industries being spawned are places where people can come in and establish a legitimate work record and either then remain working in those institutions or mainstream themselves then once they've got an established legitimate work record to move into mainstream employment. And then we got the recovery community centers that are beginning to create all of this, this incredible social world outside the rooms of recovery fellowships where people in recovery can, can maybe in their early recovery, become as enmeshed in a culture of recovery as they were in their addiction in a culture of addiction. And, and so it, it, we're really creating the kind of physical and psychological and spiritual space inside communities where recovery can flourish. Are these uh, different as- things that you're talking about more uh uh, available in urban areas or or in different parts of the country how where are they no they're pretty you know if you go if you look at faces and voices of recovery we're seeing these movements when we first pulled the movement together in in the at the 2001 recovery summit we had representatives from 32 states at that at that very early point 
And, and we now have recovery community organizations existing in almost all states, um, existing in most of the, of the major metropolitan areas. But we also have many recovery commu- community organizations that are springing up in rural catchment areas. They're springing up in Native American reservations communities. Um, and, and, and so it's, there, there's a tremendous amount of diversity, both demographically in terms of urban, suburban, rural, uh, across communities of color. Uh, the, uh, okay. probably Hold on to that. Unique... It's time for our break. So we'll be right back and continue okay. talking about these recovery-oriented communities. Stay with us, listeners. We'll be right back with my guest, Bill White. Hello, listeners. Did you know we've gone mobile? That's right. Your favorite Unity online radio programs are available on your mobile device. Now you can take us with you wherever you go. Using apps from Live 365 or Stitcher, you can listen to Unity online radio live or on demand. To learn more, visit www.unity.fm and click on Mobile Listening. Warning. After listening to the Oneness Program, Fridays at 11 a.m. Central on Unity Online Radio, people have reported feeling a profound stillness in body and mind that continues well into the weekend. Others have found that their internal quiet is matched by a flow and ease in relationships and daily activities. Join Reverend Dr. Patricia Keel for the Oneness Program and experience the oneness blessing Friday mornings, 11 a.m. Central Time on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. If you have a question, comment, or experience with today's topic you'd like to share, call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. Today, our topic is coming full circle, bringing the gifts of recovery back to the community. My guest is Bill White. Bill is a senior research consultant at Chestnut Health Systems and the Lighthouse Institute. Bill has been involved as a professional in the addictions field since 1969, and he is an author of numerous articles and books, including uh, one that is called Let's Go Make Some History, Chronicles of the New Addiction Recovery Advocacy Movement. And that's what we're talking about today is this uh, grassroots movement that's becoming uh, very prevalent in our country of people in recovery finding ways to support a recovery lifestyle that's a full lifestyle and that reduces and lets go of that stigma, lets people know that recovery is indeed possible and that it it is a wonderful way of living. So, Bill, before our break, you were talking with us about the different opportunities that are available for people in recovery and that uh, that recovery advocacy organizations and groups are available throughout the country, urban, rural, all kinds of things. Yes, and, and most, of, most of these organizations are really fueled with volunteer labor of people in recovery and family members in recovery and volunteer professionals. So, I mean, there are wonderful opportunities to, to extend service work beyond the recovery fellowships through this movement. The other thing I was mentioning, Anna, that's different about this movement compared to earlier periods um, is that the early periods were, were, were almost exclusively white movements. And what's interesting about this one is the incredible degree of representation of communities of color, particularly African-American communities and Native American communities. We have um, or the, the White Bison Organization in particular, 
that's led the Native American Wellbriety movement, which is sort of a branch of this larger recovery advocacy movement, has exerted an enormous influence on the, the, the larger movement itself. And we also have organizations like Recovery Consultants of Atlanta, uh, the Detroit Recovery Project. Um, we have projects like Association of Persons Affected uh, by Addiction in Dallas. Many of these organizations have done, you know, a wonderful job mobilizing the African-American community and resources within that community to support recovery. In particular, uh, the, the particular some of the Native American tribal organizations um, and the African-American churches. Fabulous. So great opportunities and to illustrate um, just the vibrancy of this movement historically um, I remember, you know, early in my professional career, early in my recovery, in, in 1976, the National Council on Alcoholism organized a public event in which 52 prominent Americans stepped forward on televisions and announced their status as, as being in long-term recovery from alcoholism. And I remember what an, an incredible you know, moving moment it was for people in recovery to see these individuals stepping forward as, you know, as, as icons, but nobody knew that they were individuals in recovery. And, of course, they're sports figures and famous astronauts and movie stars and people from all, from all walks of, of life uh, looking healthy and vibrant and standing up talking about, you know, this classic story of this is what my life was like now, and then this happened, but this is what my life's like now in recovery. Fifty-two people. Last month, we had more than 100,000 people in recovery and their families marching in recovery celebration events all across the United States. Um, I want you to imagine, uh, your listeners to imagine, what that would mean for a young person in recovery you know, days or weeks in recovery, growing up never knowing a single person in recovery, to be invited to one of these events and see in the middle of downtown Philadelphia fifteen to 18,000 recovery people as far as the eyes can see walking. Uh, what I can tell you, it is, it is one of the most profound spiritual experiences anybody in early recovery or late recovery, for that matter, could ever experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it changes everything, doesn't it? It it switches it all around from from uh, the shame of this disease to a possibility of a fuller way of living. It certainly gives something to aspire to. Yeah, it is, and to see people, you know, with backgrounds in AA and NA and CA and Women for Sobriety and Secular Organization for Sobriety and Celebrate Recovery and on and on having them all walking side by side as people in recovery with their families is an amazing, amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little, some details of one of these celebrations? What, what did they do? They were marching. What else did they do? Were there speakers or? Yeah, a, a very, t- I mean, it, it's, they, they vary considerably, but, but most of them, there's, there's often a walk through a large park, or if it's the larger cities, it's virtually the, the march in Philadelphia was right in downtown Philadelphia. Then people gather for, for speeches, and they walk around, and there's face painting contests for kids, and there's, you know, singing contests, and places for people to sign up and volunteer at different places. And uh, it's just an amazing day of celebration, you know, and people are there hours uh, and, and both both sort of sharing the recovery experience but also learning a lot about recovery in the process through all the various presentations that are going on and to have political leaders from these cities come forward and be part of these events and acknowledge the recovery community and the role the recovery community is playing giving back to those communities uh, that's a that's a powerful antidote to stigma Yes, it sure is. The uh, I noticed that I just got a, a, no, a notice about a magazine that I'd never heard of. It's called Renew Every Day, RenewEveryDay dot com, which appears to be I uh, got my first free issue, uh, uh, the sample issue. It looks like it's part of the recovery advocacy movement. It's got just all kinds of stories like that in there. 
Yeah, you know, when I talk about that the, we're moving from what used to be cultures of particular recovery fellowships, like one could be a member of an AA culture with its own language and values and rituals, etc. cetera. Uh, and what we're seeing now is the emergence of this larger identity of people in recovery. So we are seeing a more generic language that encompasses everyone, we're seeing, you know, books and magazines and literature and films being made. Um, so, so we're it, it almost parallels if you think of the kind of culture that grew out of the civil rights movement, in terms of the whole genre of African American literature and celebration of historically of African American music. And we saw the same thing with the women's movement, and we saw the same thing with the LGBT movement. And so what we're seeing now is a recovery advocacy movement that in a parallel way is generating its own culture. So, so Renew is part of a number of new magazines really devoted to support people in a recovery lifestyle. Great. I know that uh, certainly one resource among many and, uh, is facesandvoicesofrecovery.org. And we had uh, Nell Hurley, the director of that, on Spirit of Recovery uh, several months ago. But people can access a lot of information about recovery advocacy on facesandvoicesofrecovery.org, just the way it sounds. And also uh, through uh, Bill's website, WilliamWhitePapers.com that can get you started on a, on information about uh, different organizations. So, Bill, what would you predict? You're a historian. What do you predict uh, is going to be the effect uh, in the future of this recovery advocacy movement on society and on recovering people? You know, it's those are it's it's hard to predict. Like any social movement, it's there there are risks that it gets colonized, it gets co-opted in all kinds of various direction, directions, and potentially diverted from its purpose. But at least at this point, I think we can be fairly safe in saying that within another decade, just the sheer volume of people that are putting a face and voice on recovery is going to have an enormous effect on how this country perceives uh, addiction and the potential for recovery and the reality of recovery in in virtually millions of, of, of its citizens. And I think the other thing it's going to do in a very concrete way is it's going to begin to advocate in community after community for more recovery support resources, and it's going to push addiction treatment programs to move from models of acute sort of emergency room type intervention and stabilization to models of professional treatment that really involve long-term recovery management and support. So from that standpoint, it has uh, enormous potential. And I think in some communities that have been severely wounded by alcohol and other drug problems and related problems, I think this movement has the potential to be a real healing force, not just for individual and family recovery, but for the, for the recovery and healing of neighborhoods and communities and hopefully beyond. Right. That's really powerful. It's important, as you, you pointed out just a little earlier, that this movement is beyond just a white cultural movement. Um, that has been an issue for a long time for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, the the way that the culture is structured, that communities of color have sometimes really gotten left out. So it's great to hear that this movement, the recovery advocacy movement, is uh, being uh, flourishing in all uh, across all communities and communities of color and has the potential uh, to heal all the communities. It's great to think about recovery as as a possible catalyst for for uh, in a way a different kind. Kind of awakening uh, culturally, and, and not just confined to recovery itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The movement today is a rainbow movement, and we have people of color and people of all ages and genders and backgrounds uh, from very diverse recovery pathways, all filling leadership positions in this movement in local communities and nationally. Right, that's powerful. We're um, almost at the end of our time here, but. Do you think the Internet's had an impact on uh, the ability of the recovery advocacy movement to grow? There, yes, Anna, there's no question about that. And, in fact, you know, part of this culture that, that I'm describing that is emerging, 
part of that is vert- is a is a virtual community, meaning recovery communities that exist online and often bring together people from from countries around the world on any given night. So the internet has played an enormous role in in spreading this movement. Right. That's uh, that's wonderful. It's it really is connecting people. Well, Bill, would you have a final word for us? What would what would you like us to know as we you wrap know, this up? I think my final word would simply be that if there are, are listeners who are, are interested in potentially volunteering and think they might be you know, suited for this kind of advocacy role, to uh, contact Faces and Voices of Recovery, get to their website, and look at all the local recovery community organizations that would be close to them and, and volunteer. Get involved. Come join us. Great. Bill, thank you so much for uh, the work that you do. Thank you for all that you've written. Thank you for your getting out there and um, creating that opportunity for long-term recovery for uh, so many people. We appreciate you being here on uh, with me today on Spirit of Recovery, and thanks so much for all that you've shared. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you, listeners, for being with us today. Have a blessed week, and know that recovery is possible that it's a wonderful life and that uh, all is well. Have a blessed week. Thank you for tuning in to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Pacific for down-to-earth ideas on keeping spirituality in the heart of your recovery. Spirit of Recovery, only on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at www.soulmatters-spiritworks.org. Does music open your heart and bring you peace and joy? Experience the sacredness of sound with Ramdesh Kaur as we travel the world of mantra, kundalini yoga, and devotional music. Join us for a journey into spirit, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Spirit Voyage Radio with Ramdesh. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. may happen around you, things may happen to you, but the only things that really count are the things that happen in you. This meditative moment from Reverend Eric Butterworth is brought to you by Unity. You've seen reality TV. Well, now get ready for reality radio. It's raw, unpredictable, and completely unscripted. You Can Heal Your Life follows the lives of four people each season as they face their fears and overcome their challenges. Tune in weekly and follow along as they take each faithful step on their journey. Learn what it takes to really heal your life. Dr. Chris Michaels shows you how to expect specific and measurable results from prayer. He says, We must place a demand upon consciousness. We don't hope to get what we pray for. We expect it. As a 25-year veteran in the New Thought Movement, Dr. Chris has helped thousands of people find their way to success and healing. His faith is unshakable, and his commitment to helping others heal through the power of prayer is extraordinary. Don't miss Reality Radio, You Can Heal Your Life, with Dr. Chris Michaels. Live, Mondays at 11 a.m. Central Time on Unity Online Radio. what you want in life, but you don't know how to get it? How could your life change if you had a coach in your corner cheering you on? Join me, Coach Carla McClellan, and fellow certified life coach Drew Rafkin from the Academy of Coaching Excellence 
for Spiritual Coaching, Tools for a Vibrant Life, October 18th through the 21st here at Unity Village. With our years of coaching experience, we can help bring your life into focus, turn dreams into goals, create a clear path to success, and motivate you to keep going. I hope to see you at Unity Village. Learn more at unityvillage.org slash spiritual coaching. Hello, listeners. Did you know we've gone mobile? That's right. Your favorite Unity online radio programs are available on your mobile device. Now you can take us with you wherever you go. Using apps from Live 365 or Stitcher, you can listen to Unity Online Radio live or on demand. To learn more, visit Unity Online Radio and click on Mobile Listening. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.